0: for your unending grace. All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Can you hear me? Am I on? Cool. Um, Well, if you have your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 24. Um, While we're doing that, kids, if you're a kid in here, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Uh, I know that we have this reputation of like Only being college students, which we love college students, we're unapologetically going after them, but um, we also want to attract families and grow in that area. So um, kids can be dismissed. Uh, Welcome to Easter Sunday. This is awesome, right? I'm wearing a blazer. This is how awesome this is. Uh, Someone said, why aren't you wearing a whole suit? I said, because you're not dead and we're not at a wedding. So (laughs) if you want that, die or go to get married. Other than that, that's not going to happen. Um... So as we're getting ready for this morning, let me kind of set the pace real quick. Uh, My name's Gabe. I I know there's some new faces here, some new families. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, I'm one of the elders. One of my main responsibilities is preaching and teaching. Um, And so we're just excited to get here, open up the word. Um, We had an awesome Good Friday service where we remembered, we mourned. um, We had incredible testimonies here and what God had done um, in and through people, through Christ's death. Um, but now we're here. Since we lived, we we grabbed our faces and forced ourselves to look at the crucifixion, Uh, but now we can preach and talk about the resurrection. Um, This is Easter. It's going to go long. Get comfortable. I'm preaching, all right? I'm just kidding. But I like that, I mean, we can keep going. Uh, I see some of you are not entertained, which is okay. Um, So as we get started, I have to confess a sin real fast. Uh, Before I can go to God's word, I need to confess something. I am an incredible procrastinator, anyone else? All right, so even to the, uh, uh, no lie, I was finishing up my sermon last night, reading over it, and kept watching sports, man. Like the Easter, I mean, this is it. Preach the sermon, write the sermon, and I'm watching incredible sports wins back-to-back home runs, I mean, just these incredible things, and and I'm watching this as everyone's sleeping, and I'm getting teary-eyed because there's that moment where they hit the home run. I got to see two of them. Evan Gaddis, do you all remember Evan Gaddis for the Braves? If you're not a Braves fan, you can leave. Uh, Evan Gaddis, and I also got to see Freddie Freeman both do a walk-off home run, just... Everyone is going crazy. There are uh, beverages flying in the air. I'm not going to say beer this early in the Easter sermon, but there were <laughs> beverages flying. People were high-fiving, the strangers giving hugs. It was fantastic because a baseball game won. Or, or we see the Hail Mary that goes. And, and so, man, YouTube last night just, I mean, just, I fell into the trap of sports after sports after sports, these massive victories, which had me thinking the greatest moment in history Of all time, there was no one there to witness. So, what we see, what we understand, what we want to go to is this massive celebration um, where, I mean, just a party breaks out. But when we look at the resurrection of Christ, who was there to see it? Now, that party, that, that scene, we've all probably been at a sports game where that's happened. That happened in heaven, that happened in glory. And from then till now, we get to celebrate, we get to party, we get to get excited, throw beverages in the air. Don't do that, because we gotta clean it up. Unless it's water, water's fine. But that's the purpose of this morning. It's a time of celebration, of reflection, because it's Sunday. The resurrection has happened. That's why we wear pastels and look cool, right? It's happened. So Luke chapter 24, we're gonna pick it up in verse one. As we start this story together, Luke chapter 24, we're going to pick it up in verse one. But on this first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared and they found the, stole, the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. Verse 8. And they remembered... His words, and returning to the tomb, they told all things, all these things, to the eleven and to the rest. Now was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the Mary the mother of James and the other women who other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But they the words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Verse twelve. But. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray together as we dive into this text. Father, we are um, so excited. You are the great I am. You are the, the one that defeated death. There is an empty tomb still to this day Father, and if we don't have this, if we don't have the resurrection, if we don't have this story, this moment in history, Jesus, we have nothing. So this morning, as we read your word, as we talk about the implications of it, Father, would you stir affections in our souls? Because apart from this, there, there's no gospel, there is no hope. Just so in your name we pray, amen. So what we're going to do here, if you're new here, we just kind of read a little bit and talk a little bit, understanding the scripture and what we're understanding. So hop back with me to verse 1. It starts off with this word, but. Now, anytime you see, but in scripture, that should start to rattle you a little bit because that means that God is more than likely about to intervene and blow things up in the way that we couldn't understand. It's creating a whole new category for us. And so we have to go back because this but doesn't matter unless we understand what just took place. That three days ago on Friday, the death of Jesus happened. And the last thing that we see in chapter 23 is that they rested on the Sabbath, that Jesus died on Friday. The ladies got everything ready to go see Jesus, to go um, put the fragrances on his body, and then they rested, and now Sunday's here. But we have to go even farther back. Look at me at Luke 23 chapter, or excuse me, Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Because we read this Good Friday, but there's something huge, there's an implication that takes place that I just want to draw our attention to. Because here we meet a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. Now here's what matters about Joseph. Keep reading the end of verse 50. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. So here's this guy, Joseph, that was part of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the guys that were trying to frame Jesus and murder Jesus and were successful at it. So here we meet this guy, Joseph, who had all this power as a Jewish leader, but verse 51 said, who had not consented to their decision and action. So he was present for the vote of the crucifixion of Jesus because he did not agree. He is the only man that we see in scripture from the Sanhedrin, from the Jewish council that said, no, this man is innocent. We should leave him alone. He's the defector. He's the one that says, no, Jesus is God, leave him alone. So he takes all of his power, all of his authority. He walks straight up to Pilate, who had just crucified an innocent man, but walked straight up to Pilate and said, give me Jesus's body, let's go. Now, not many, I don't know if you understand this, but like, that's like me walking up to President Trump and demanding something of him that he had that much authority that he could walk straight up to Pilate and say, I want Jesus's body. And because of who he was, because of Joseph, his stature within the community, he had one of the best of best burial plots there was right outside the walls of Jerusalem where only the Jewish religious leaders would lay. So Joseph, the defector, the one that understood from all the Sanhedrin said, no, give me his body. I'm going to wrap it in cost. I'm going to take care of this. So that's where Jesus lays in Joseph's tomb. Now, maybe it's just my arrogant, prideful heart, but I just love the fact that these men that had Jesus killed, these religious guys, now had Jesus laying in the midst of their tombs. Just the irony just gets me. Maybe you're not like me. So that's where we pick up the verse, but because something different is happening, but Verse 1, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared for him. So these ladies, like I mentioned before, uh, Friday in that day was a day of preparation. So Sabbath, I mean, sundown on Friday, 6 p.m., they could do nothing until Saturday at 6 p.m. They took the law of Sabbath um, completely, strictly enforced, right? I mean, they could literally do nothing. So on Friday, they had to prepare everything for that day. So the ladies after the death of Jesus went home, prepared everything, and then sat. They could do nothing. Can you imagine the turmoil that they're going through? Can you imagine the hopeless situation that they'd found themselves in? I mean, can you imagine Mary, the mother of Jesus, not being able to get to his boy even in his death because of the Sabbath? So they had waited probably two sleepless nights, and on the first day of the week, They left, but Mark sixteen 16, three, here's what it says. And as they were saying to one another, as they were walking, who will roll away the stone for us to the entrance of the tomb? So their thoughts, their, their mindset walking to the tomb was, well, how are we gonna actually get in so that we can put these spices on his body? There was no hope in their voice. There's no anticipation of coming to the tomb and seeing anything different than death. The main concern going on in their head is who's gonna open up the tomb for us, because we can't. And I think that's where we we jump too far. We we kind of normalize the story, but if we put ourselves in the disciples as they're sitting there, and, and the ladies as they're walking to the tomb, there's zero hope, there's zero optimism, there's zero future for them. Jesus is dead. Let's go prepare his body. Mourning, loss, depression, whatever verbiage you wanna put in there. As they're walking, that's what they're dealing with. They're, they're not anticipating. When I get there, the tomb's gonna to be reopened. open. They're saying, who's gonna open it for us? Let's keep reading, verse two. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Lord Jesus. In in John's gospel, he would tell us that they thought his body was stolen. So even in this moment, they weren't anticipating that he had been resurrected. They thought someone had came and stolen his body. Verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. We, we know these are angels. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Oh, church, if we could just rally around that question, I mean, if we could just embrace that question, why do we so often feel hopeless? Why do we so often feel like this world isn't all that it's cracked out to be? Why do we want to run away from the God that saved us? Because we're looking for answers among the dead. Ephesians 2 would tell us that we, know that we let the world that doesn't know the first thing about living try to tell us how to live. So we're looking for answers, we're looking for solutions, we're looking for Jesus among the dead. So no wonder there's no hope, there's no life, there's no future when we do that. Verse six, he is not here but has risen. A better translation would say, he has been raised. Remember how he told you while while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and must be crucified. And they remembered. All that we will ever need to know about Jesus Christ to sustain us in our life is found in the Bible. It's found in his words So look, this isn't just a conviction for us. We see this over and over and over again. Ricky will preach about it the next week. I will preach about it the next week. Remember when we told you, oh yeah, I remember. Remember the turmoil that, that all these ladies, that all the apostles went through, that they didn't have to if they would just remember his word. So church, when we come to a Sunday gathering, we're gonna preach to you the word. When you get involved with the MC, we're gonna discuss the word. When you get in a DNA, you're gonna read the word together. There's nothing more, there's nothing less other than the word of God. If we remember the words that he spoke over us, then we'll be fine. Here's, Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about this. I think it'll be on the screen. If you wish to know God, you must know his word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he works in his word. If you wish to know his purpose before it comes to pass, you can only discover it by his word. So the angel spoke over them, don't you remember what he told you? And they did. Church, we have his word. Verse eight, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all things to the 11 and to all the rest. That was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now, if we're building a case, right? If, we're, if this is just some history channel discovery myth that we're dealing with, that Jesus wasn't actually raised from the dead, that this was just his body was stolen or he didn't actually die, all these things that you're gonna try to hear uh, here's probably one of the most compelling arguments from scripture, that women are the th- ones to report him. Now you got to put your mind in what's happening in this year, in this time. Women had no authority. They had no power. They had no jurisdiction. Their voices would be nothing in the court of law. So if these guys were trying to manipulate and make this seem like it was something that happened that didn't actually happen, they would never have said, well, let women report it. That would've been comical, that would've been ridiculous for them to say that. But it's what happened that Jesus first revealed himself to women, that there's no reason in scripture why women should be second class citizens. That he chose to reveal himself to the ladies and they came running back. But the apostles, they didn't, they didn't want anything to do with it. Grief can do really funny things to us, right? I mean, shock can make us not understand, not fully be realized what's happening. I'm recovering from a midfoot reconstruction surgery. There's about 13 screws and plates in my foot. Um, and, and what happened when I was in college, I was playing tackle football like an idiot, Georgia Southern, um, got tackled, tore all the ligaments in my foot, tried to stand up, realized something was wrong. So I sat back down, I said, hey guys, I, mean, I was in college, I was probably like, bros. I think I broke my foot. Just as plainly as that, hey guys, I think I broke my foot. Now you can imagine what college guys said back to me in that moment because the calmness in my voice. You're lying, get up, you're just pouting because you didn't get first down, let's go. Try to stand up again, sat back down. No, seriously, I, I, I broke my foot. Just as calm, plain as day, no one believed me until I took off my shoe and they're like, bro, you broke your foot, let's go. So we we can't judge the disciples, the apostles, too strictly, too harshly because they're sitting in the room just mourning because grief and shock does something strange to us, that they were in real reality of what's taking place. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them as idle tales. They did not believe them. They were in mourning and confusion and didn't want to hear this. I mean, you've got to put yourself in their situation. That these guys had given up everything for the last three years. They'd given up careers, they'd given up family status. They'd laid everything on the line for Jesus, followed him, heard him teach, watched him do all these miracles, everything they counted as loss so that they could follow Christ. And then he died. And without remembering all that he had said, of course there's going to be mourning. Of course there's going to be loss. Because this guy that they invested everything into is now gone. What then do we do? We've all been there. We've all had a job that just got ripped out from underneath us, a relationship that got destroyed, a friendship that we thought were our best friends, and now we don't even talk to him anymore. And of course there's going to be some confusion that takes place. Verse 12, but Peter, again, remember that but, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking, in. he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what just happened. So what Peter, what happens here in Peter's life is the antithesis of what happens to us through this process of the resurrection. So just just take for a minute Peter. He hears this news, but all the other apostles are just laying there, laying around, depressed, mourning. Peter gets up and runs. When I was in fifth grade, we were driving down the road and some angry guy T-boned us and we were in a Jeep. and So we flipped two and a half times. And my mom was driving, my brother's in the front seat, I was in the back and a fire hydrant, praise God, stopped us so we didn't keep rolling. And so the passenger side of the Jeep was on the ground. The driver's side was up. So my mom was kind of like hanging by seatbelt, just an awful situation. And all I remember just sitting there kind of coming to like, oh man, we just got in a car accident. I looked around the front of seat and I looked down in the my floorboard with my brother. My mom was hanging and out of the windshield, all I saw was two huge eyes. I mean, just massive eyes that were kind of looking in the windshield. And now that's just a joke for our family because that's the first thing that we remember as we came to from the wreck was these big eyes just looking at us. He must've been, I don't know who this guy was. we never met him, he must've been walking down the sidewalk, saw all of it happen. But he was just looking with his huge eyes because he probably thought we were dead from what just happened. So when I read this story of Peter stopping to stoop in, all I can imagine is Peter's massive eyes with this anticipation and hope of are these ladies lying? Is this true? So when he looks in with these big eyes, just kind of like peeking, I don't know, maybe I'll just psych myself out, but I think I'd get there and like peek real quick and see if I saw anything and then like just get the confidence because Peter knew what we should now know that if this resurrection happened, it changes everything. That Peter out of all of them knew that this is true, then we now have hope. That this is true, this message that Jesus preached has now been solidified. Only if this is true, So Peter runs, man, he takes off. He gets there, he stoops in, and what does he find? Nothing, he finds these linen cloths by themselves. So for the rest of our time together, we just wanna look at what Peter did in light of the resurrection, and hopefully that would stir our affections. So we see that Peter ran, that he marveled, and that he believed. See, right before Jesus' death, what happened to Peter? He denied him three times. As the court cases were going on within the Sanhedrin, three people accused Peter of being with Jesus and every time he said, no, that wasn't me, that wasn't me, you're crazy. The only other person that this happened to was Judas. In the last hours of Jesus' life, he gets denied by Peter and he gets betrayed by Judas. But we see what happens to Judas, right? As Jesus is condemned to death, Judas rushes back, the Gospel of Matthew would tell us, rushes back to the Sanhedrin, rushes back to the Jewish leaders and go, no, 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 here's your money back, let Jesus free, I'm, I'm out, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. And they said, it's, it's too late, the, the, everything's happening. His death is going to happen in the next couple hours. And so the remorse that sets in on Judas leads leads Judas to run and kill himself, commit suicide. He could not handle the guilt of what took place. So if that happened in the heart of Judas, in the last moments of Jesus's life, Peter denies him three times, it would not be an unfair assumption to say that Peter was close to that point. That the guilt, the, the turmoil, the remorse that Peter was dealing with had him thinking crazy thoughts. I mean, can you imagine the last things you say to your best friend in the world were of denial? So when Peter hops up to run, you better believe he's thinking, I can apologize. I can can make this right. If if this is true, then, then I get a second chance. And what Peter doesn't realize is he gets way much more than a second chance through this resurrection. He gets way much more than a chance to apologize because of the implications of this resurrection. So what drove Peter to hop up and run? Hope. Hope, as as we're gonna see through this that if there is no resurrection, church, there is no hope. If there's no resurrection, there's no second chance, there's no ability to ask for forgiveness, to repent, there's no, none of that. So the hope that was in Peter got him to hop up and run. So look, I, I, I know the myths and the jokes and the creasters the that there's people in this room that are only here on Christmas and Easter. And I know that there's gonna be sarcasm thrown around all across churches in America today. But here's what I'm saying. You're not here by accident. We're not gonna ridicule you or mock you because there's a hope in you that just like Peter had you running into this gathering this morning because there's a hope welling up inside of you. There's something that's drawing you in, and I can tell you what it is. It's Christ compelling you, it's Christ drawing you, he's wooing you back to him. But just as Peter jumped up and ran, there's something that would not let you stop coming to this gathering this morning. Pay attention to that, what is this hope that we feel? As he gets there, as he realizes that Christ is no longer there, scripture would tell us that he went home marveling at what had just happened. What was he marveling at? I mean, obviously, I, mean, I don't wanna sound too dumb, Jesus wasn't there, right? Like That's what he's ultimately marveling at. But the implications of what he was marveling at are blowing his minds. Flip back with me to Luke chapter five. This is one of the first times that Jesus really taught his authority and modeled his authority. And so I'm just imagining as Peter's walking back home as he's marveling, this story's playing out in his mind of what he heard and saw. We actually taught this passage back in February of 2017. If you wanna hear the whole thing, you can go to iTunes and listen to it. We've been in Luke for like ever. Luke chapter five, we're gonna pick it up in verse 18. Luke chapter five, verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and when they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. Verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Verse 21, and the scribes and Pharisees began to question him, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is a magnificent question. How can this man, Jesus, say his sins are forgiven? Only God can do that. Remember, we'll keep reading, verse 22. Jesus perceived their thoughts and answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven to you, or to say, rise and walk? Verse 24, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who's paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So he's telling the Pharisees, look, What's easier for me to, I can just say this, I can say that all I want to, Dylan, your sins are forgiven. Boom, write a big tithe check on your way out, right? We can just say these things without having to prove it. So Jesus is going, I know what you're thinking. What is easier for me just to say an empty deed or to prove to you, not only that I can forgive sins, but I am God, because only God can forgive sins. Sins. Verse 25, and immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been laying on, and went home glorifying God. So from that moment on, Peter had in his mind, is Jesus actually God? So he's marveling, he's wondering, he's questioning. That he said he was, and I saw that take place. But if he's actually God, if he can raise himself from death, then it means he actually can forgive sins. It actually means that he can forgive me, that he can make me a new creation. It means all that Jesus said and preached and did is true. So Peter is marveling, oh my gosh, was I actually walking with God? the implications of that, of the resurrection, would prove this to be true. But here's one thing I just want to point out here, because I think especially in the Bible Belt, we get this so twisted. Peter, right, Peter saw what happened to Jesus and then marveled. His response was based out of what Jesus did through the resurrection, But for us as Christians, all too often, we wanna do something so that Jesus would be resurrected. We wanna earn his favor, we wanna earn his love. But Peter goes through the proper steps. He saw that Jesus was resurrected, and then he said, what does this mean for me? It's always Christ first. If any of our theology says it's me first so that I can earn something, that I can prove something, that I can be forgiven, that's false theology that needs to be thrown out. But if it always goes back to Christ first, then what? So church, are are we marveling? Have we gone through this season of marveling? Have we asked the hard questions? Have we had this hope that drew us to it and then we read the gospel, we heard the gospel presented to us and it said, but this can't be true. That this cannot be true. That Christ was resurrected, that Christ redeemed us because of his death on the cross and because of the resurrection. Now I have hope, now I can have hope A future? Have we had the season of marveling? Because for Peter, we see about 50 days of marveling, of wondering, of questioning. Church, all too often we hear this like, well, you seem to make a decision right now. But we don't see that for Peter. We see a season of waiting and marveling. But flip over to Acts 2 because we see the fruit of of his marveling, we see who Peter turns into. Because we have Peter, the coward, that denied Jesus three times, hours before his death. And then we see that he has hope, that he runs to the empty tomb, that he marvels at what he sees. And then does he actually believe? Does he walk forward in this relationship with Christ? 50 days later, here's what he says, Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Now, Peter is saying this in the faces of the men that killed Jesus. Belief, true faith in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, gives you some confidence like you have no idea. Verse 24, God raised him, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So you tell me, did Peter believe? Did the coward Peter believe who denied Jesus three times, did he marvel and it lead to a point of belief? 100% it did. Church, when we see the empty tomb, when we understand the resurrection, when we believe that through all Christ accomplished on the cross and was redeemed, was resurrected in his death, that changes everything about us. It doesn't make us a bad person that turns into a good person. It makes a dead person that turns into a live person. Because Christ was dead and now has been raised, our sinful way is dead, and now we've been raised as new creations. And we see this fleshed out in Peter, and everyone around him sees it too. Let's keep reading, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, "Oh, excuse me, I lost my place. Here we go. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all there who are far off. Everyone who, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witnesses and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So here we have Peter preaching the true gospel that because Christ was resurrected, now we can have forgiveness of sins. And again, did it work? Verse 41. So, those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, that would be miraculous in this day and time, but that would be ludicrous if those that were around the death of Jesus knew that it was a hoax and still came to faith. I mean, we just cannot have an objective reading of Scripture and even just historical events that took place and still deny that Jesus was raised from the dead. But the question is, why did this resurrection lead to belief in Peter's heart? Why why did it matter? Because we spent the whole Friday evening praying about, thinking about considering the death of Jesus. But why wasn't his death enough? Why did the resurrection matter? I have four kids and I love them dearly. I have a wife that is incredible. And I would die for every single one of them. Some kids, yes. Every single one of them. Some moments, maybe. Every single one of them. That's what I tell myself. But does that death make me their savior? Any of us can die for the ones that we love. Does that does that do anything? Does that prove anything? So Christ's death on the cross, if it stopped there, he would have just been a man. But through his resurrection he proved that he actually was God. Flip with me, last last flip. First Corinthians fifteen. So we start to wrap up our time together. Because we, yes, we should boast in the cross. If it wasn't for the cross, there would be no atonement for sins. But if it wasn't for the the resurrection, he would not be God. We've got to understand that. We've got to celebrate that. That's why we rejoice. That's why we celebrate. That's why we worship today. Because if there was no resurrection, there is no hope. If Peter would have ran to the tomb that day, got there and saw Jesus still laying there, there would have been no hope. There would have been no future, there would have been no promise, there would have been no joy, there would have been no celebration. But he ran and found an empty tomb. And here's what, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to pick it up in verse 17. Here's how Paul would say it. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people should be pitied. Did y'all catch that? That if Christ only died but wasn't resurrected, we should have all, of all people should be pitied the most. But, verse 20, but in fact, Christ had been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who had fallen asleep. verse 21, for as by man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so all in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So because Christ was the firstfruit, Christ was the resurrection, we now have hope that we can be redeemed. Tim Keller would put it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs on is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So because of that resurrection, everything in this book is true. Because of that resurrection, we now have hope, we have a future, we can be redeemed. That we're not like Peter that runs to a tomb, finds him there, and mourns his loss. But we are like Peter that runs and marvels and believes that because Christ has been raised from the dead, so we have hope, we have a future. And church, I, I just gotta be honest with you, the words of Paul have wrecked me this week, that we should be pitied among most. If there was no resurrection, then what are we doing here? If Christ wasn't redeemed, then then let's go after the desires of the flesh. Let's try to make as much money. Let's break the bonds of marriage. Let's just go crazy because there's no afterlife. There's no future. There's no nothing. We should be pitied among most. So let's live our best life now. Let's do it. But that's not the case, that's not how the story ends. That we will have a resurrected body with Christ one day. That we can be redeemed. So here's my question for us. Are you the runner? Are you the marveler? Are you the believer? Because like I said, if you've run into this room looking for hope, you found it. You found a bunch of people that are broken in our sin that we will boast all the more in who we really are because when we're weak, Christ is strong. There's nothing about the resurrection that proves how good we are. It only proves the glory and nature of Christ. So if you're walking into this room, you're running in looking for hope like Peter was and you're broken and you're downtrodden and you think there's no way that Christ can save you. You're in good company. You should get to know some of our stories. You should get to know my story. You would feel a lot better about yourself. My wife tells me all the time, I cannot believe you're a pastor. (laughs) Welcome to the branch, right? It's who we are. Because this has nothing to do with me and my ability to follow rules or my lack of ability to follow follow rules. Or even enunciate for that matter. (laughs) Follow rules, right? It has all to do with Christ and Christ crucified and Christ redeemed through resurrection. So, so maybe that's not you, maybe you're in the season of marveling. Praise God for that. Press in, ask questions. This isn't some shameless plug, get involved with an MC, be real and honest and open with people that you trust and that you love and that can answer questions. And church, I'm telling you, we're not gonna tell you what we don't know. If you get involved, if you're in this process of marveling, kind of thinking and fleshing what this thing's at, what this thing actually means for you, we'll say, hey, let's study that together. I just want to brag on someone real quick. Daniel Tipton sitting right here is currently going through the Bible with I don't know how many people, but he told a story at an MC last week that, that he would picked two people that are kind of in this questioning stage and said, let's just go through the book of John together. And they're already saying, Man, this, this scripture is illuminating my soul. I think by the end of this, I'm going to be a Christian by the time this is over. So, so walk with us. Let's marvel together. Don't marvel alone. But if you've already had this hope that caused you to run, and if you've already gone through the marveling stage and you are now a believer, let us preach the gospel boldly like Peter did in the face of our enemies. Let us not back down for what could happen to us because if Christ has been resurrected, then we're untouchable. I mean, Romans would tell us clearly, if Christ is forced, and who can be against us? What's the worst that's gonna happen to us? Because the opposite isn't the case. If we don't preach, what's the worst that's gonna happen to them? Separation for eternity from Jesus Christ in hell. That's what's gonna happen. So we cannot let the belief that's stirring up in our souls stay dormant from our lips. We must speak, we must preach, we must celebrate. On this day of all days, we must rejoice because we now have a hope and a future. We have now new creations. There's nothing holding us back. Christ has done everything. Peter's message in Acts 2 is all that has to take place. Through faith, repent and believe. So if we're in that belief stage, man, let us preach in word and deeds the good news that has saved us, that has redeemed us, that has resurrected us too. And after this gathering, we're going to get to see three men get baptized that are going to profess through the imagery of baptism what this means, that we were all buried with Christ in baptism. We've all been raised, if we're believers, all been raised to walk a new life. So let us celebrate, let us rejoice what this resurrection means for us. Just a few short hours before Jesus' death, He walked his disciples through communion. He said, this is my body that was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood that was spilled out for you. So what better way of us to celebrate the resurrection than to go back to Christ dying for us? Isaiah 53, five puts it this way, but it's by his wounds we are healed. But church, today is not a day of mourning, today is a day of celebration. So let us examine our hearts and let us gladly go to the table and break that bread, dip it in the juice and celebrate all that Christ has done in us and through us because he is no longer dead and neither are we for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes this is the good news of the gospel. So let us pray. Jesus, you made a way when there was no way. And although we are like the disciples that sat and waited wondering what you're going to do, that we've all gone through seasons of, of mourning and of loss, of no hope, considering what's gonna happen to us in the future. But Father, we get to sit on this side and celebrate and remember that you were resurrected that death couldn't hold you there, that the enemy, that Satan had no authority, that he had led you to that point, that he had gotten to the mind of Judas, that he had stirred up the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he thought he was winning, Father, but we see you're the ultimate victor, that there's nothing that can hold you back. And we see our sins taken care of in the cross, but we see your divinity proved out in the empty tomb, that you are God, that all that you said was true, that you have the ability to forgive sins. We have hope, that we have a future, that if it wasn't for your resurrection, we should be pitied among most. But that's not the case. So we're thankful. It's in moments like these that, that words just don't seem to matter. That there's not enough to say to prove our, our thanks. It's you died. And it wasn't some hoax, it wasn't some mystery, you died. And on that death was every sin that we have ever committed and ever will commit. But then you raised, you have raised from the dead and now we can be redeemed. Now we can be new creations. That our old sinful nature is gone, that that our new identity is here. So God, as we take communion this morning, let us remember all that you did for us. Let us remember the love that knows no bounds, that knows no limits. That even when we were still sinners dead in our sins, you died for us, you sent your only Son. Why? But because of the resurrection, we now have hope. If we place all of our faith in you, we can be redeemed. So church, as we examine our hearts before communion, the question is obvious. Are you redeemed? Have you placed all your faith, all your hope, in Christ, the one that had died and was resurrected? Have you marveled, have you come to grips with the reality of your sin? and saw the weight of them there on the cross, and saw the power of them defeated through Christ defeating death. Where are you in this process? Because we're about to celebrate. We're about to sing, we're about to celebrate through communion, we're gonna celebrate through baptism, because believers, we we understand the weight of this. So my question is to you, So as a time of examining our hearts, uh, there will be elders over by the door going to the bathroom. If you want to pray with someone, they'll be there to greet you. But as we take communion this morning, church, let us have a time of celebration. Let us worship. Let us sing our hearts out. Because we now have been redeemed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's only by your power, it's only in your name that we can ever pray, amen.